And we are now tonight continuing with our great commentary to the fundamental text of Indian spirituality and of yogic wisdom, which is the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the middle of a very hot chapter of this text, the third chapter, where Krishna for the first time starts talking clearly about Karma Yoga. And Krishna defined the spiritual action. Krishna in this chapter even spent a few verses in defining the ritual action, the spiritual magic action, the action which is the essence of spiritual sacrifice, as the generic term calls it. And eventually, Krishna is getting back to the point of his discourse to Arjuna, which is to show to him what Karma Yoga is. And therefore, he talks to him about the detached action. And we are somewhere in the middle of that chapter, and in the verse number 20, which was the last verse from last time, Krishna was advising Arjuna, perform action with detachment, act without attachment. He even convinces him, tries, uses as argument by comparing his action with the action of King Jataka and King Janaka, I'm sorry. King Janaka from Yore is, one, is the archetypal, one of the old archetypal examples of a karma yogi, a spiritual person who at the same time fulfilled the duties and the responsibilities of a king. You would expect a spiritual person to maybe consecrate their life more to meditation and other internal phenomena, but Janaka, among others, because he is not the only one, even Krishna says Janaka and others, they actually reach their perfection more in a tantric style, more in a sahaja samadhi, more in a samadhi with the eyes open style, doing karma yoga, and he says, Krishna says, even looking to the welfare of the world, you should perform action. Thus, he even tells him, this is a bodhisattvic thing. In the moment when a spiritual person starts doing action, dharmic action, the proper action, he says, it's for the protection of the masses. Because if a wise man does not act, then a lot of negativity will invade the world. We already talked about these things. And now he continues in the same trend, but basically he tries to give to Arjuna already a sense of value, a sense of valor. He says Janaka and the others acted for the well-being of the people, of the masses, for the welfare of the world, and so should you. Krishna tells him, if you, Arjuna, who are at the same time a spiritual and intelligent man, and at the same time a king by birth, if you don't do the right thing, what will become of the world? And that is why Krishna uses many, many arguments. He comes from many, many angles, showing to Arjuna how important his mission is. 
And in the verse, in the strophe number 21, in the shloka number 21 with which we start tonight's commentaries, he says, whatsoever a great man does, the very same is also done by other men. Whatever the standard he sets, the world follows it. This is another sentence which is not very democratic because Krishna simply says not all people are equal. There are very important people in this world and they are setting the standards. Krishna says 99% of the people are a mob, a crowd, lemmings. They follow the example of somebody great. And that's why the idols which we have, they color our society. It may be that in the social organization of the modern times, we have a social system, or in many places at least, we have social systems which claim themselves to be democratic. That's fine from the standpoint of the social order. But Krishna says, in reality, there are people which have a greater value. Like what Jesus does affects millions and billions of people. What the Prophet Muhammad does influences the fate of millions and billions of people. What Buddha does and says influences the fate of the world. Because people are not capable of that originality. They need to follow in the footsteps of someone that is great. So here, Krishna makes nothing more and nothing less than the apology of the enlightened ruler. He says the best thing it would be if people would have enlightened rulers. If the kings and the idols of the world would be wise and pure and sattvic, the world would be blessed because people would follow in their steps. A great man creates like a charisma, like a trend, like a fashion, and people tend to do what that great man or that great woman, for the case, does. But as the world decays in Kali Yuga, people start choosing lower and lower idols. Look into culture, painting, writing, social sciences, politics, and others. What kind of idols do people build? From depressive philosophers, materialistic and dark, a la Jean-Paul Sartre, to political leaders like George W. Bush, from pop stars like Madonna and Lady Gaga, to all sorts of other writers and authors, deformers, painters, and artists of the ugliness and other such things, then automatically what kind of standards we set. That is why, remember that things, again and again, are very different from a spiritual standpoint. No? You can ask yourself, how come that a lot of customs, habits, the use of certain drugs and other things is on the blacklist, 
and at the same time the use of other things which is obviously damaging the world, such as intense alcohol consumption, which is the cause of a thousand evils from domestic violence to traffic accidents, something such as tobacco smoking, they are tolerated freely. And then you see that in a society, in a traditional society, for example, like in Bhutan, the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, which is a traditionalistic, fundamentalistic, almost medieval Buddhist kingdom, smoking is punishable by prison. Even recently, a Buddhist monk was thrown into prison because of smoking. And that can, of course, always rise in the modern world, the flames of argument. Should it be a free world that everybody can do whatever demonic thing they want? Like, should we have satanic lodges open everywhere because everybody can do whatever crosses their minds? But then where is the limit? No, if you would accept Satanism, then why would you oppose rape or theft? or something like this, and, or at the same time, should a society be kept sane by the sages, by wisdom, by simply saying these things are profoundly wrong. This is something which has not been solved. In the modern world, the general tendency is this of liberalism and do what you want, of course, within some limits, but remember that the traditional societies were different. Even the Greeks, we think we are great innovators, but actually the Greek culture has experienced democracy for 500 years. In the Western world, democracy started appearing some 200 and something years ago. And even then, discreetly and timidly, and therefore, the Greeks, historically speaking, they had at least double as much experience in democracy, and they dropped it. After 500 years of democracy, the Greek culture dropped it. And what was their solution? The enlightened dictator, that you should take Buddha and make him king, but not constitutional king, absolute king. Like, give all the power to Jesus, or to Buddha, or to Muhammad, and that will be a good society. That will be a society which indeed will contain wisdom, balance, compassion, and the real love for everyone. Of course, such attitude, when 80% of the members of a society are demonic, and they secretly want to poison themselves, to drink themselves, to do all sorts of demonic things, then they will oppose. They will oppose with hypocrisy. Hypocritely saying, well, you can't have that. But the secret of it is, because if you would have that, then I wouldn't be able to do some shit from time to time. And therefore, I'm defending my own darkness. I'm defending my own right to step into the darkness by simply asking for a sort of freedom which is chaotic to a certain extent. 
this is something which comes, is a conflict which comes between the traditionalists and the traditional type of society where the Brahmins are inspiring the society for a greater purity and the modern society which is an example of Kali Yuga decadence and all sorts of things are not according to the traditional wisdom. So Krishna simply said in the previous shloka, Janaka and others reached perfection by doing their duty. You have to think of the welfare of the world. And he emphasizes this saying, whatever a great man does, the other men also do. Whatever he sets up as a standard that the world follows. Very few people can see that today. And that is, of course, always a challenge. Because if a man like Jesus comes, he is about to set a standard. And that, of course, the people who can't live up to that standard, they hate him, they hate the whole thing, and they try to destroy it. The standard which Jesus wanted to set was so difficult to set, and it took centuries before some groups of people could live according to the dream of Jesus, the fathers of the desert and other mystics and other communities who are trying to live according to that. Even in the 12th or 13th century Italy, when Francis of Assisi comes and says, well, we've been Christian for 12 centuries, it's about time that we live according to the words of Jesus and not just try to approximate the Gospels and like really fulfill what Jesus said and thus he preaches simplicity and poverty according to those famous verses. Think of the lily in the fields because they do not toil and weave and yet they are dressed like King Solomon in all his glory. So he simply asks to literally live according to the word of Jesus and the Christian society, the medieval Italian Roman Catholic fanatic backwards for us today, fundamentalistic in Christian society, they actually hate him. They beat him up. They kill one of his disciples. They persecute them. They complain about them. And they are at odds like the standard which Francis of Assisi wants to set is unbearable for the egoism, for the impurity, for the materialism of 90% of the society around them. Even today, people may shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, Francis of Assisi, very loving person, very good person, but to live according to his standards, that's a completely, completely different thing. <clears throat> and today, the difference is bigger than it was in the 12th century with that society. So, there is a great depth in this shloka <clears throat> because that is the power of the spiritual example. That's why Swami Vivekananda of India said, give me a hundred people who have reached the spiritual realization and with them I can change all the conditions of existence on this planet in a few years. Vivekananda said, if we would have a hundred enlightened beings joining hands in a common project and they would want to bring a change, 
they would bring a change not only in India, <clears throat> they would bring a change on the whole earth, which demonstrates sadly and very clearly a truth which very few people think about because it's disturbing to think about it in this way. There were no even a hundred enlightened beings because if there would have been, the statement of Vivekananda would have come true. But there were not a hundred. That's why Vivekananda nostalgically says, give me a hundred realized souls and I will change. But he did not get, if he would get those a hundred souls, we would not be in Kali Yuga. That's the synchronicity. Like the universe don't, doesn't allow it to happen, because if a hundred messiahs, if a hundred Buddhas, if a hundred great enlightened beings would be born simultaneously and synergically, then the planet would be changed. But if the planet would be changed, we wouldn't see Kali Yuga anymore. It wouldn't be the winter of mankind. We would live in the spring of the mankind. But according to the cosmic cycles, we are still in Kali Yuga. And therefore, because Kali Yuga needs to happen so that the lower classes of spirits, the smaller spirits, the darker spirits, the more demonic, selfish, materialistic spirits, they can also incarnate and live lives on this earth and have a place to unfold their evolution and their activity. Because of this, the number of enlightened beings is capped from above. It is limited because if there would be too many of them, humanity would not resist and it would be changed enthusiastically. Maybe there would be some sacrifices, maybe there would be some martyrdom, maybe there would be some opposition and some inertia, but eventually humanity would change because whatever great men do, the masses tend to follow. This is the law announced by Krishna. And that's why, unfortunately, every society has got the heroes that it deserves. We worship certain kind of persons and thus we set our compass in the wrong direction. Very few people in the modern society, they would respect a Buddha or a Ramakrishna or a Rumi, or a Francis of Assisi. I have lived out there, outside of our wonderful bubble of energy here in Pangan, and most people scoff with scorn when they hear such names. Such names are a nuisance, a disturbance. These are freaks, extreme people, and the normal things are, no. oh, if you would be a champion in tennis, if you would be a gold medalist in ice skating, if you would be a Nobel Prize winner in physics, or those are the heroes of today, not the spiritual people. So today there are many forms of setting trends in the wrong way, which is the trademark of Kali Yuga. That is, we can always try to push and push and push higher, but at the same time, remember that we live in a world which is having its own laws, its own standards, and we have to understand 
the wise man and the wise woman never get frustrated because the world is the way it is. It is the way it is because these are the laws of time and space which make it be the way it is. It's exactly like a tulip farmer, like a gardener that loves tulips in European climate, temperate climate, would be frustrated that his tulips refuse to sprout and grow and blossom in the winter time. But of course, tulips cannot grow up in the winter. It's too cold. They need the proper season. It's a lack of wisdom to keep on playing, planting tulips in December and expecting them to sprout and bloom. That's why a yogi would know we do all the good which is possible and if a gust of spring is coming, that's fantastic, things will progress, but only the society can progress only according as the universe and the environment changes. It is absurd to presume that we can create spring in the middle of the winter just because we are impatient and we think, well, you know, enough is enough. Time for the tulips to bloom. But at the same time, we have to listen to the voice of nature. We have to listen to the dharma. We have to listen to the order of the universe. And in the, in the strophe number 22, this is one of the great strophes. I told you there are a few verses like action is superior to inaction. There are such a few verses, about, about one or two in every chapter, which everybody who loves Bhagavad Gita remembers those. And like from time to time Krishna says some beautiful sentences, some cardinal, some essential sentences. Here comes one of them in chapter 3, the shloka number 22. It's one of those landmark statements. Eventually, not only that Krishna tells him about Janaka and the others, and he says, you are a great man, set a standard, do the right thing, but eventually Krishna points at himself as modest as he is spiritually. Nevertheless, Krishna simply says, after all, look at me. And what amazing example he gives to Arjuna. He says, in the three worlds, the three worlds means the whole universe. The three worlds is a syntagm used in India, mean to use, uh, meant to signify everything because it means the physical world which is actually as in yoga we call it the physical plane and the etheric plane it means the subtle worlds the, the intermediary worlds which in yoga terminology would be the astral world and the mental world and then the spiritual world which in terms of yoga would be the causal world and the sixth plane of the universe so they are grouped two by two one and two three and four, five and six, and those make three worlds, which in the famous Vedic mantra, Gayatri mantra, they are called Bur, Buvah, Svaha. Bur Loka, Buvar Loka, Svarga Loka. Bur Loka, the lowest two planes, Buvar Loka, the middle two ones, and Svarga Loka, the upper two ones. Above these six planes of the universe, 
Of course, there exists the seventh plane of the universe, which is God, which is the cosmic consciousness, which is the universal consciousness. But this one is not counted with the others because this is an aspect which is transcendent. This goes even beyond the causal plane and beyond the causal world. And it is something which is beyond space, beyond time, beyond causality, and that's why it's not counted with the others. There are three worlds and God, like in the symbol of the triangle, where there are three sides, and in the middle of it there is the all-seeing eye of God, the symbol of the seventh plane, the symbol of the cosmic consciousness. So seeing in the three worlds, it means in the whole creation. And again, the shloka from the mouth of Krishna says, in the three worlds, there is no action which I need do, O Arjuna. Nor is there for me anything worth achieving unattained. Even so, I am engaged in action. Krishna says, Maybe you don't realize, and later he will make him realize, anticipate. But Krishna says, I am a perfect being, because I hope you are aware, most of you, that Krishna is not a dude. Krishna is an avatara, and an avatara means a divine incarnation. Krishna is an aspect of divinity, it's an aspect of Vishnu, incarnated on earth for a cosmic mission of changing something in the history of India and of the world. And Krishna says, I coming from where I come, I being Vishnu incarnate, in the three worlds there is nothing which I need to do. Like I'm somebody who is beyond karma, beyond need, beyond desire. I'm like God. I don't need to do anything because I don't have any want. I don't have any lack. I don't have any desire. I've transcended all that. So in the three worlds, either physically or in the invisible subtle worlds or even in the causal worlds of creation, there is nothing which I need to do. I'm, I'm beyond that. And he says, nor is there for me anything worth achieving unattained. Like, what would be worth achieving? Like, why not to learn to walk on water, or I don't know what, some powers which can help you manifest things, or heal things, or some knowledge. I want to know if there exists a parallel universe. I want to know if there exists an anti-universe made of anti-matter, or something, whatever. No, people can have needs of knowledge, of obtaining things, and Krishna says, there is nothing worth achieving unattained, which is a colossal statement because Krishna by this says, not only I am an enlightened soul, but I am full of power, like I have achieved everything. I am not only enlightened, I am a master of the universe and there is nothing worth attaining which I haven't attained already. And yet, he says, even so, I am engaged in action. He says, Arjuna, do you realize I, Krishna, the avatara of Vishnu, who have achieved everything in the three worlds, 
I am here incarnated in a human body with you on this mangy little planet at the edge of a galaxy and I am working like a charioteer. He's basically a coach, a horse coach. I am a charioteer on a battlefield of all places. Like it's going to be a mess soon with people dead and blood and mud and everything. Like a battlefield. And I, Krishna, who have achieved the three universes, I'm still like, why? Why do I have an itch up my ass and I'm not sitting quietly in my cosmic spheres watching the universe with detachment? How comes that I, Krishna, Vishnu, divinity... I, I have accepted to incarnate on a small planet, being with you in a world of Svadhisthana and Manipura, of confusion, desires, ambition and stupidity, and I'm here working as a charioteer on a battlefield. Like, how low can one go? It's like, I, Krishna, even I believe that action is necessary. No, they, there is that sentence which they use in some movies or there's an expression which, say, which says what do you give to the man who already has got everything. Krishna is the man who's already got everything. And Krishna, although he's got everything, he still is in action. He stills the, He lives according to his philosophy. He shows to Arjuna, I'm not a hypocrite. I told you before, Action is superior to inaction. And he says, even I, image of God, I am here on a planet spending my time involved in action. Because action is superior to inaction. This philosophy is the cure for all the forms of spiritual passivity. All the people who are spiritually lazy... You find so many people who say, Ah, no, it's all in the hands of God. What shall we do? We shall do nothing. Let God do. If it has to happen, it will happen. That's not what Krishna says. Krishna says, pull your sleeves up and get to work. Even if you have conquered the three worlds of the universe, get to work. Even God does karma yoga. Those who don't do karma yoga are ignorant, they are lazy, they are tamasic, they just like laziness and they think they are spiritual. That's not the ultimate understanding of spirituality. The ultimate understanding of spirituality is this, there is nothing in the three worlds, O Arjuna, that should be done by me, nor is there anything unattained that should be attained by me, yet I engage myself in action. Like, what do you want more than the personal example of Krishna? Krishna, therefore, sets the standard. He says, everybody should continue acting. The Hindu and the Buddhist tradition, they mention, and it did happen, this is not an artificial statement, that sometimes they are enlightened beings, people who do spirituality, and if they manage to do proper spiritual practice and they open their crown chakra, 
they can go in such a flabbergasting state of enlightenment, which is so blissful, which is so gratifying, that sometimes, not sometimes, always, there appears the tendency to stop acting. Like once you have reached nirvana, what are you going to do? You have reached nirvana. Everything from your standpoint can be looked upon like an illusion, like a world of ignorance, like people see it, but it's the matrix. Once you discover that the matrix is the matrix, why would you keep on staying in the matrix, knowing that it's just a computer-generated world or whatever, an illusion, basically? And that's why Buddhist authors quoted very much by theosophic authors a hundred years ago and more, <coughs> they say clearly that one of the biggest temptations of everybody who fully reaches nirvana is never to come back out of nirvana. Like once you have reached it, and it's not just an accidental five-minute experience, it's kind of you got it for good. You got the right to go there at will. Then why would you come out of it? If you can enjoy non-stop ecstasy, endless ecstasy, forever and ever, which of course the mind cannot understand because the mind says, but probably from time to time you get bored of so much ecstasy and you want to get out of it. That's a very childish remark because, and it shows somebody who has never been in ecstasy because ecstasy through its very nature, ananda, the bliss, the spiritual bliss, you cannot get bored by it because it's outside of time. So there is no boredom in paradise. It's not possible through its very nature. Only people think so because people think with a mind conditioned by their limitations. And therefore, once you have reached that state, why would you come back? Especially knowing things from a totally different perspective. And actually, believe it or not, but this does happen. It did happen in India. It did happen in Buddhist environments. It did happen even among some classes of yogis, that some people would work and work and work, enter states of samadhi, and then simply abandon their body. People would find them in a meditation position, but the spirit is gone. Like they died in their, through their yoga. They simply exited the body in a state of samadhi because for them it was useless. In India, there were even Vedantic teachers, and one of them of whom we know was the very guru of Ramakrishna, Totapuri. After they got enlightened, they somehow got convinced by the prejudices, by the pre-programming of their mind, funnily enough, that maybe when you discover something so great, you should pass it on to someone else. So you should have at least one disciple so that this knowledge should not be lost. But once you have reached realization and you passed it on to a disciple... Your work on this earth is finished. You can very well go. And because some of these Vedantic yogis, they did not develop powers, siddhis, and they could not die when they wanted, then they simply chose to die artificially. And the method most used 
Again, this not being a wise decision in the big picture, they walked in the Ganges. They simply drowned themselves in the Ganges. They simply walked in the Ganges. They didn't know how to swim and they simply drowned. And many people say yogis committed suicide. Yes and no. It is technically speaking a suicide. It's not a suicide because those people were enlightened beings and they had the feeling that they finished their job. Adi Shankaracharya, the reformer of Hinduism, died at the age of 32. You can ask yourself, how could such a great yogi be so sick or so imbalanced so as to die at the age of 32? Like he should have been really, really ill. And if he was really, really ill and he was such a great saint and such a great yogi, why didn't he extend his lifespan a little bit? But it appears that Adi Shankaracharya never planned to live more than 32 years. The great Swami Vivekananda of India lived 39 years of age. And he had a brilliant start. He was known, famous, <coughs> carrying the cause of Hinduism and yoga and Vedanta and India in the world. And everybody said, should Swami Vivekananda have lived another 10 years? Wow, only God knows what great revolution this man could have produced. What great... He died at 39 and the common knowledge is that he died of diabetes. But even if he was not a Hatha Yogi, he was surrounded by a world of yoga. There were yoga hospitals and it's not possible that in the world of Ayurvedic doctors and Hatha Yogis, he wouldn't have discovered somebody who would have told him, look, you can do Udhyana Banda and Nauli and you can do this and that and take that plan and you can alleviate your diabetes. And yet Swami Vivekananda, according to his understanding of the universe, never made a single effort to prolong his lifespan beyond 39. Like 39 years was enough for him to do whatever he had to do. So what I'm trying to say here is that even in the world of spirituality, <clears throat> this is a great controversy. Like there is a choice. People who set themselves free, they are free indeed. And this means they are even free to stop living. That's why I said it's a suicide, but it's not a suicide because it is like you are reaching to a crossroad. And there you can decide without God blaming you. Maybe people, because of ignorance, they will blame you and they will say, oh, I think that sounds awful. That's just people who speak because of their limitations and because of their conditioning. Truly is that such a person reaching at such a crossroad can stay or go. But why would you stay? Because you have reached a lot of, you have reached the basic things. Why would you stay further on? Only out of compassion. The main, the main motivation is compassion. The Buddhists, to counter this, they instituted the famous standard of the Bodhisattva the bodhisattvic condition and they even instituted in Tibetan Buddhism and in the Mahayana Buddhism in general, they instituted the bodhisattva vow. 
The Bodhisattva vow is a scary, formidable, terrible thing in which a human being who is a spiritual practitioner, even before they reach enlightenment, like without really knowing what they are talking about, like it's not an informed decision. You simply take it on faith from your predecessors. Like they tell you, that's good, trust us, that's the good thing to do. And then you take it on faith, and then you say, when I will reach nirvana, which right now I only theoretically know what it is, but I don't know really what it is, when I will reach nirvana, and by the way, that could make me change my opinion completely, and I don't want to change my opinion completely, and that's why even before I reach nirvana, I take the decision that when I will reach nirvana, I will not die and leave my body and stay in nirvana, but I will make an effort which will feel like a terrible sacrifice. I'll make an effort to come back and to service the humanity, to serve humanity, to act out of compassion. And of course, when you really get to that point, you bite your fingers like, why, oh, why did I make this vow? Because it is so tempting to actually drop everything and go. That is yoga without karma yoga. That is yoga oriented only towards void, but not towards manifestation, as karma yoga is. And that is why Krishna sets this much higher standard. He speaks about the bodhisattva vow. He speaks about the fact that even the enlightened beings, even the Buddhas, even the avatars, they do act. The superior option is always action, not chickening out, not quitting, not going away. That option also exists. And again, the Indian society and sometimes the ancient Buddhist society, they were full of this idea. They were having this thing like, okay, you have a choice. You do yoga and you do yoga and you do yoga and you reach nirvana or moksha or mukti, whatever you want to call it, and then you may as well pack and go. It's your right. You have earned your right to finish off the whole thing. Krishna also in Bhagavad Gita puts an end to this. He speaks against it. He says, if I, Krishna, got born in this world to be a charioteer to my good friend Arjuna, because this serves a cause of humanity, because this is the dharma of what's going to happen here in India under my supervision, then automatically this shows that everybody else should be in action. Nobody has the right to leave action, to quit action. And that is why, no, there is no break, there is no pause, there is no end to things. Just like Jesus and Krishna and the likes of them act, all the spiritualists are advised exactly this. This paragraph is a meditation paragraph and many people repeat, repeat it 
in India. It's like a meditation on the nature of God and on Krishna and on Vishnu. There is nothing in the three worlds, O Arjuna, that should be done by me, nor is there anything unattained that I should attain, yet I engage myself in action. This is the model. And he continues, of course, explaining, although there is nothing to explain except the principle, but of course the consequences are interesting to develop. And he says, what if I did not continue unwearingly in activity, O Arjuna? Men, in every way, follow my example. So Krishna says, if I, as model of God, as divine model, I would not engage myself into action, so would all the other rishis and yogis and enlightened beings and saints. Everybody would copy. God is passive, and that's why, why don't we also go passive? All our endeavor is pointed to reach a break. We all are doing yoga and yoga and yoga to reach that give me a break level where you can simply tilt out like leave me alone. That's not the philosophy of the universe. The divine consciousness doesn't want to be left alone. The divine consciousness has a device, has a, has a de desire, although that's not a desire in the human meaning of the word, but the, hum the divine consciousness have a desire, has a desire, that's why the universe was created. The very first desire, Icha Shakti, the will, the original will of God, is that the universe was created. If not, if you don't have something to do out of this universe, then why bother to create it at all? It would mean that the divine consciousness is brain dead, doing something which it later abhors or regrets, or which it withdraws. Oh, I created the world, let the world mind its own business, I pull out of it. No. The divine consciousness creates the world, the universe, the three worlds, deliberately, and because there is a design, the divine consciousness continues staying with the world, and thus acting. There is a device. Remember those of you who studied the text of the blessing technique here with Agama. Saint Mary of Egypt says it beautifully. She says, blessed be God who loves people and wishes for their salvation. Like God is not just sitting and saying, let's see, maybe you doom yourself, maybe you save yourself. It's a very interesting and sadistic show for me to see what the heck you are going to do down there like a separate onlooker. But the divine consciousness is not separate and it wishes something. And that's why St. Mary of Egypt says, God loves people and wishes for their salvation. God is not neutral. He is not 50-50. The divine consciousness is 51% inclining on the side of something. God loves the human beings, says St. Mary, and God wishes for their salvation. There is an intent. Of course, people who are ignorant, they can't understand it or feel it 
or see it. They say, this is just words for me that God loves us. I have had so much trouble and tribulation and pain and confusion that it's hard for me to accept that God loves me. And it's very hard to accept that God really wants me to reach enlightenment when I have so many obstacles. And that's because you take things egoistically and you are spoiled and you expect to receive everything on a silver tray. It can't be made that easy. But still, there is a propensity. There is a movement in a direction. This universe contains in it, embedded in it, as a basic law of it, the idea of evolution. The spirits which are caught in this samsara, they evolve. Even by just breathing, just converting oxygen into carbon dioxide, and still you are evolving. Very slowly, it's true, but still you are evolving. The universe is not a lake. The universe is a river. It flows in a certain direction, which shows that's exactly what Krishna says. I, the divine consciousness, I am in motion. I am pushing. That's why the enlightened beings push. When Buddha realized the nature of reality, he started preaching what he discovered. He could as well have shut up. And the preaching of Buddha is called in the Buddhist terminology today, setting the wheel of Dharma into motion. Like Buddha does nothing else but what the divine consciousness does. Buddha sets the wheel of Dharma into motion. He contributes to the evolution of souls. Why? Because God loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. Therefore, <coughs> so Krishna explains, saying, for should I not ever engage myself in action, unwearied man would in every, every way follow my path, O Arjuna says, if I would be lazy, people would be lazy. But I am in action. And Krishna pushes it even further, showing his cosmic scope. He says, if I did not engage in action, but he doesn't speak like little Krishna, the charioteer. He speaks like the representative of the cosmic consciousness here. He says, if I did not engage in action, these worlds would perish. He says, actually, the world wouldn't even be able to exist if I wouldn't blow into it, if I wouldn't sustain it, if I would not support it. It's more than that. It's not that I have to do that. But he says, it's actually the existence of the world is conditioned by the constant existence of this wish. Don't forget, <coughs> the human body is created and destroyed every second. Every second cells are born, millions of cells are born and die. Therefore, the creation, you were not created 30 years ago, and now you just keep on living out of inertia. There is a creation which happens in every second, and so is the universe. The universe was not created 6,000 years ago like the Christians believe, 
or uh, billions of years ago, like the big bang scientists believe that it was created once and now we see it. It's created every second. Every second a part of this universe materializes out of the void and another part of this universe dematerializes back into the void. The circuit is alive. The creator is not separated from the creation. The creation and the dissolution continue every second, every moment. And that's why Krishna, in a theistic way, not in a scientific way, he says it very right. He says, if the divine consciousness would not be alive, this pulsation that something materializes and something dematerializes, some people call it spanda. It's like the heartbeat of God. It's like the throb of God. That spirit becomes manifestation and manifestation turns into spirit. And there is constantly like a tide and web of the universe. And therefore... He says, if I did not engage in action, but that's again not this little action on the battlefield, this is just a little illustration, but there is a metaphysical principle to it. If I did not engage in action, these worlds would perish. Because this action, this icha shakti, this desire, this fundamental will, is the life of the universe. Without it, the most people imagine that the universe is made of boulders and rocks and atoms and that those things are dead. Many people use the expression inanimate matter, matter which is dead. But in a tantric tradition you'd never say that because even an atom is God. Even an atom carries the divine consciousness. So there is no inanimate matter. So this vision that the universe was created by the creator and then it became something separate is a very painful and limited view which exists in many theologies. Regular Christianity treats the world, the manifestation and the human beings like they are separate from the creator and the creator is one thing and the creatures are something else. But in Generally, in Indian spirituality, this mistake has not been propagated, like the creator and the creature are one and the same. There is the same breath blowing or breathing in all of them. If I did not engage in actions as Krishna, these worlds would perish and I would be the cause of confusion and of the destruction of these people. Of course, if the worlds would perish, you wouldn't really need to bother about what the people do, because the people would perish with the worlds. But on another plane, kind of tempering it down a little bit, Krishna says, even if you don't understand this one with the worlds would perish, but he says, I, because I give a bad example, I set a bad example, a bad standard, I would be the cause of confusion and destruction of these people. Which is again setting a heavy responsibility. And this is something which is valid in spirituality and very few people realize it. Because this percentually, exactly if Krishna does it, then you can imagine it's valid for Buddha Either Buddha is an avatar or not, but Buddha 
like Buddha can come and be completely passive and then he sets a bad standard or Buddha can be a great karma yogi and then he sets a good standard. The same thing would be valid about Rumi. The same thing would be valid about Ramakrishna. The same thing would be valid about Swami Shivananda. The same thing is valid for everybody at their own level. Every spiritual teacher, every spiritual seeker feels at some point this burden on their shoulders. And that's why the point is that you can't stop. You shouldn't stop because it conveys the wrong message. That's why the Christian mystics, they devised or they conceived this under a very weird concept which very few people can understand. Christianity, as many of you know, was built, among others, on a large basis of martyrdom. Because Jesus brings this strong idea of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice, and then this idea became so powerful in the hearts of some people that some people have reached to the point where they simply accepted self-sacrifice. And as probably most of you know, in the first 300 years of its history, for Christianity was a forbidden religion. And in the Roman Empire, it was ceaselessly persecuted. And this persecution resulted in tens of thousands of martyrs. Men, women, children, young, old, they have been crucified, burned alive, thrown to the lions, tortured in unspeakable ways sometimes. And those 50,000 deaths and blood is exactly the foundation on which Christianity came forth. Like when 50,000 people are ready to give their life for a cause, then you can conquer the world. And therefore, what I'm saying here is like there is a form of martyrdom and martyrdom was accepted by the great saints in their meditations and in their understanding of the universe. Like this is a way to reach salvation. That people who simply kept their faith and who simply exemplarily died for a spiritual cause, they moved the hearts of hundreds of other people. Every martyr awakened the consciousness of a hundred other people. And because of this, martyrdom is considered to be holy. But then, martyrdom being holy, many people, especially if they are a bit tough, a bit fearless, they would be tempted to do the same. Like if there is somebody who became a martyr, then I want to become a martyr. Which is, of course, it's like you are looking for suicide. It's like you are looking for martyrdom. And that's not the correct attitude. And that's why the Christian saints have spoken, have said clearly that unlike some of these people who commit terrorism with bombs and they want to be martyrs, it's actually a big spiritual mistake to ask for martyrdom and to produce it, to kind of provoke it. The martyrdom should come in spite of your best design and will. And if God is asking you to carry that crown of thorns, 
then maybe you should, but you should not look for it or provoke it because it's not yours to decide that. It's a fine ten, it's a fine line there, and I don't want to go in this direction because it's not the purpose tonight. But the point in this which I wanted to say is that Christian mystics later, they simply say, in the spiritual life, there are two forms of martyrdom. There is the martyrdom by tribulation, by passion, like the passion of the Christ. And that is a martyrdom which comes from God. And it is a trial. It is a test for some very strong souls, if they are ready to go the full on. And besides that, there exists the martyrdom of daily life. There exists the daily martyrdom. That doesn't sound very blissful. That doesn't sound very happy. Like people who are saints and who have reached to a high level, they say there exists a martyrdom of day to day. And that martyrdom is that although you could go in samadhi and have your brain produce endorphins forever and just stay in a sort of a heroin trance in nirvana, gone, you wake up, you do your morning kriyas, and you start living your spiritual life. And in your spiritual life, you stand up straight, you fight with laziness, you fight with inertia, you fight with darkness, you fight with sin, you always tend to become a little bit tamasic, indolent, this, that, and you have to fight with it. And that's called the daily martyrdom. Like people very seldom understand this because the spiritual people don't like to speak too much about it. But that's what many people say. Okay, you have done 12 years of yoga. And in the end of 12 years of yoga, you have reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi and you are on and blissed and enlightened. What comes next? Let's say this happened by the time you are of the age of 35. You are 35 years old, which would be like a mid-age of the human being. And at the age of 35, you have reached already your enlightenment. There is nothing for you to achieve in the three worlds or whatever. That's a bit of an exaggerated statement. So, what do you do? Like, what's happening tomorrow? Many people, of course, you cannot ask the beginners to think at this, because the beginners see in front of their eyes only the goal, and the goal is moksha. I want to reach samadhi. That's all I know. And if somebody asks you, what will happen next day after you reach samadhi? It's like, you know what, that's what I will see then. It's premature to think now of what I will do or think or something when I will reach Samadhi. But point is that that question does arise. When you are like St. Francis of Assisi and you have lived as an enlightened being for 10 years, what are you going to do tomorrow? Because what Krishna says that action is superior to inaction and you cannot stay and you should do action, in Christianity was said by Jesus as a parable that you should multiply 
the coin, you should multiply the denar or whatever those coins were in the Roman Empire in those days. And it's this parable in which somebody was given a coin and in the evening he brought back to his master or after a year, he brought back ten coins. He multiplied them, he invested them wisely and the one who just took the coin and buried it and then in the end of one year brought back the coin and says, that's what you gave to me. The master got angry and he was punished. He was burned. Which is a very scary thing because it says in this life it's not enough to be stationary. Stationary is punishable. Stationary is not good enough. You have to grow. There has to be a slope to your life. You have to grow. You have to multiply the initial investment. The life which, you are, which God gave to you, which nature gave to you, you have in the end of the life to be more than you were in the beginning. And thus, this tells us the same thing. You can't stop. You should not stop. So realize, the great saints, they saw this. They felt this. And they realized, here I am, like St. Francis of Assisi. I have been enlightened for ten years and God still doesn't want to kill me. If my life would end, I would instantaneously become a martyr, especially if somebody would persecute me, and I would go in the kingdom of heaven. End of story. Lovely. But God doesn't want to do me that favor. It's actually a favor. And I'm sitting here and I have to multiply the coin. I have to keep on pushing. So every morning I wake up and rack my brains. What should I do to do more? Because I can't afford to be lazy. Lazy is like a betrayal of myself. It's like a betrayal of God. Because the nature of God is to be in action. And therefore, I have to stand up, clean myself... If we, like Francis of Assisi, had followers and disciples, go to them, encourage them again. I did it for 10 years, but I still have to do it and push more and give them more faith and give them more personal example. And in a certain way, it could be that boring, like I've done that for 10 years and I don't really need to do it. I'm, I have to strictly do it for the others. This is the day-to-day -day martyrdom, the daily life martyrdom. Until you haven't been there, you don't know exactly what it means. And that's why many people, when they speak about the state of enlightenment, they don't really know what they are talking about. They can't understand what was in the heart of Buddha every day. They can't understand what was in the heart and mind of Ramakrishna every day of their lives. What did this feel, these people feel? And that's why Krishna here gives you an idea. You know? He says, I cannot cause the destruction of all the beings. I, he says, these worlds would perish if I did not perform action. I would be the author of confusion, of costs and destruction of, their, of these beings, like all the things which Krishna decide, described as Dharma. He says, I have to keep it up. I have to keep it up. And that is why 
this is one of the dimensions of the spiritual life which not many people understand. Many people say, Swami, Swami, I want it quickly. I want Samadhi. When will I reach Samadhi? <clears throat> that's fine. I respect and love your aspiration because that's exactly how it's supposed to be. But remember that there comes a point where you say, today starts the rest of my life. Because your life will not end at that time. And because of this, there comes a totally new responsibility afterwards. Because then you are not blind. Then you are not ignorant. Then you cannot pretend that you don't know. And then if somebody would martyrize you, it would sometimes be just an easy way out. Martyrdom is the easy way out. And to keep it up till the age of or 82, like 83 or 84, like Buddha, that's the hard way. That's the hard way. Because you have to wake up and keep pushing the wheel. You have to keep pushing the wheel of Dharma. And everybody, you are human beings and you know, everybody wants a break. Everybody is lazy. Everybody has some tama. Everybody wants to just go in a hammock and watch the sunset, you know. It's like, why would you have to push? And Buddha, poor Buddha, he has to push every day, constantly. Because that's the law of manifestation. That's, he kind of yoked himself to this. It's a yoke to be worn on your shoulders. It is a responsibility to be taken. And so, Krishna then, after he gave himself as example, which can sound immodest, but actually Krishna does it in a very natural way, like he doesn't brag or sound really bad about it. So he just, in a very direct way, he gives himself an example and illustrates a cosmic principle. And then in the Shloka number 25, he comes back to the, to the statement, to the main line of his argumentation. He says, as the unwise, the ignorant, act out of their attachment to action, O Bharata, so should the wise act, but without any attachment, desiring the welfare of the world. The ignorant attacks, uh, I'm sorry, acts due to attachment to action. They simply can't stop from acting. You take some people and put them in a room to do nothing. In a few hours or days or weeks, they will howl like wolves. They go crazy because everybody, as lazy as they are, they still have a bit of rajas, guna in their system, and therefore they want to act. People want to do something. If you have nothing to do, you masturbate like a monkey in a zoo. You start going to cockfights. You start betting in the casino. You do something just to pass your time. One of the biggest curses of the human society actually is boredom. One of the biggest plagues of the human society is boredom. People do an incredible number of things 
just because they are bored. That's why Nero, as commented, as interpreted later by Niccolo Machiavelli and others, defined the essence of manipulation. He said to manipulate the masses, you have to give them bread and circus. Just two things. It doesn't take more. Bread and circus. If you give to the masses bread and circus, you have them in the palm of your hand. Because inferior people, that's all they need. Bread, which is this muladhara type of insecurity. What am I going to eat tomorrow? Will I still be able to live? And, and it basically means the survival needs of muladhara chakra. And then something on Svadhisthana. A little bit on Svadhisthana, which means entertain me. Give me some fun. Because I cannot just live like a worm and do nothing. I need some fun. Bread and circus. That's the essence. This is what the basic need is. Of course, a very developed human being, you cannot manipulate them with bread and circus because they need more than bread and circus. But those are the human beings who are evolved. As experience has showed it, the masses, the large masses, react to bread and circus. You can see it because, you know, somebody puts you in a room and says meditate. You go to a 10-day meditation retreat and you have to do that. And what's, of, what's one of the things which always plagues people? Boredom. When, you know, you can't go and do your internet, you can't talk to people, you don't know what's happening, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then the main thing which appears is boredom. For years and years I looked at the world, both people that I knew and people that were alien to me, like not, known, not knowing them directly, and... They were strangers to me in terms like we are not acquainted to each other. And I've seen that people act out of boredom. Either they decide to have illegitimate sex or they want to do this or they want to do that. It's actually boredom. Even people who take drugs and smoke. I have seen people in a day where they would be busy, really busy, they wouldn't have time to smoke one cigarette. And in the day where they would sit in a hammock, they would start smoking. Because they smoked, or whatever they did, they drank or they took drugs out of boredom. That's the curse of the human life, actually. It's, bore. it's not that everybody is too busy. Everybody can't keep themselves busy, and they start doing silly things. And that's why Krishna says it right. The unwise have an attachment to action. People are attached to action. Oh, you have to do something. When I grew up in a communist regime, the communists had one of these dictums which claimed that work is what made humans. Like human beings are humans because of work. It's work which made us human beings. And this was 
written first by Karl Marx, who astrologically was a Taurus, and most Tauruses are notorious workaholics. They cannot stop from working. They have to act and act and act and act. And as some humorist, some anonymous humorist was saying it, when the communists had this dictum which said, work has made man. And somebody added a second line to it. But laziness neither did kill anybody. No, like, why not be lazy? That was not a workaholic. And actually that doesn't work because even the laziest person gets bored of being lazy. Let them be lazy for 10 days and then they start getting funny ideas because you have to do something. Every human being wants to do something. So actually human beings are attached to action. There is a secondary meaning to this statement because that meaning is that people are attached to action because whenever they do action, they want the fruits of that action. So people are attached to action or actually they are attached to what they expect to get from that action. Like I'm doing an action, I'm going to get money and those money are going to make me rich or make me be comfortable or this or that. So Krishna is so very right. It's such a profound meditation on the human condition. That's ignorance. Not to know what to do with your life. And why did the chicken cross the road? Because it had an itch up its anus. Because it couldn't stay quiet. That's why. The chicken is stupid. It has no reason for crossing the road. The chickens cross the road idiotically and they get run over by cars. Why, does, why did the chicken cross the road? Because it couldn't sit in meditation. Because it did not have a contemplative nature. The contemplative nature simply says you can feel fine without doing anything. It's ignorance which makes us attached to action. Action can be moved on a spiritual plane. It doesn't always need to be physical action, although Krishna demonstrates physical action. So Krishna says, you see the whole world acting, swarming, crawling, because they can't stop. They can never stop. That's the essence of life. Life means motion. Every living creature moves one way or another. And therefore, Krishna says, the ignorant man act from attachment to action, O Arjuna. And he says, so should the wise do. The wise should not stop this. That's what people think. If the, if the ignorant act, then we just go into pure contemplation. No. Krishna says, it's useless to stem that. It's useless to damn that. It's like you are contradicting the very nature of life. You are contradicting the very nature of existence. That's not what you do. The wise should also act just without attachment. This minor thing has to be brought about. The wise should act without attachment. So he says, so should the wise act, but without any attachment, desiring or wishing the welfare of the world, which is nothing else but speaking about compassion. 
he simply says, the wise should act out of compassion. Like Krishna, he says, I solved my problem. There is nothing which I need to fulfill it, any of the three worlds. So why do you think I'm here on a battlefield? Out of compassion for the welfare of the world. This is the only motivation which remains acceptable. And this is what defines for the Buddhists the Bodhisattva vow. That you can stay in this world and act with compassion and detachment. So the first condition is keep acting, but with detachment. And the second condition is it should be motivated by compassion. This is a very beautiful and high-level, principle-level <coughs> definition of karma yoga, of acting in this way. So, one more shloka, 26. Here, Krishna, after he turned back and defined so beautifully the principle, act with detachment, act out of compassion. In 26, he gives a very special statement, one of the strong statements in Bhagavad Gita. He says, let not the wise man or woman, we would say, create a division in the minds of the ignorant who are attached to action. Like, people are attached to action. He said in the previous shloka, the ignorant act because of their attachment to action however that would be expressed. And here he comes paradoxically, it's exactly like he says, you know, you should educate everybody in karma yoga. But actually he says something else, which is exactly what Jesus says in a couple of times, in a scary way, almost like, is this man really compassionate and loving? Then why does he say that let the dead bury their dead and you should not upset people out of their sleep of ignorance. That's exactly what Krishna says. He says, let not the wise man create a division in the minds of the ignorant who are attached to action. Established in being, which means in Atman, being is Sat, it is the nature of God. So established in Samadhi, we could say, he should direct them to perform all actions duly engaging in themselves, in them himself. Or in the translation of Shivananda, just to hear it in a slightly different wording, let no wise man unsettle the minds of ignorant people who are attached to action. Remember that Jesus says, if you cast pearls to the swine, the swine will trample upon them and then turn against you. Like Jesus says, some teachings are not for the pigs. So, how come, Jesus, you are loving everybody? Yes, and although he loves everybody, he knows that some people are pigs and they should not receive pearls. Pearls are not for the pigs. And when he picks up a man from the funeral of his mother or father and he says, you are good for a disciple, come follow me. 
And this man says, give me at least a couple of hours to bury my mother or father or brother, whatever it was, and then I will run and catch up with you and your disciples. And Jesus gives him a cruel answer. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Like those people who are at the funeral, they are dead. They are cannon fodder. They are the meat of history. They are ignorant people who are born, live and die like cattle. He is not very compassionate, not very elegant, and not very politically correct. He says, you are special. Come with me, even if you don't fulfill your family duties. It doesn't matter. And let the dead bury their dead. They are a different caste. We have the, the knowers, the initiates, who are the salt of the earth, and the dead. The dead who will probably not wake up in this lifetime. They still have to live 3,000 lifetimes of soap operas and telenovelas before they will have aspiration and they will start raising their eyes to God. Until then, they want bread and circus. Those are the people for whom bread and circus is enough to live their lives. It's politically incorrect, but basically it tells us that not everybody is fit for all the degrees of initiation and spiritual realization. You may get deluded by the world of artificial democracy, social democracy in which we live, by thinking that yoga, and not more than yoga, the spiritual realization is for everybody all the time, at all times, because what the heck, it's a democratic right and it should be shared to everybody. Neither Krishna nor Jesus is of that opinion. And if we said Jesus and Krishna, we said the top luminaries, some of the most clear-viewed spiritual people who ever stepped the face of this earth. And they say no, actually. And that's why Krishna says, let not the wise main unsettle the minds of ignorant people who are attached to action. Like people are attached to action, they can't stop from acting because they have this chili up their bums. They have interests and attachments and they hope to get pleasure, money, entertainment, this, and they keep on going. In a certain way, they do the will of God unconsciously. This agitation is the nature of life. If a life form would be, then it would not be alive. Everybody would say you are like a rock. If you are like a rock, this is not a life form. Rocks are not animate. They are inanimate. And therefore, we even know that life seems to involve movement, action, change, transformation. It involves birth and death and all what comes between them. And that is why Krishna says, don't try to stop people and tell them, since you are attached to action, maybe you should stop. No, let, let the river flow. Let people do. And he says, established, he being established in Samadhi, he should direct them who are not in Samadhi and they don't know what the heck he's talking about to perform all actions, in duly engaging in them himself. Only that, of course, there is a difference. He engages in those actions consciously, knowledgeably, deliberately, with detachment, 
and out of compassion and they just continue their nature. Krishna says a very interesting thing. Let people catch up with yoga and with karma yoga along. You don't tell them, stop, become, first become detached and compassionate, and then I will allow you to start acting again. Because until then, your action is a misery. No, he says, let them act. And as they ripen spiritually, then the wise people can tell them, this action which you do anyway, you could do it with detachment. Like a doctor that performs surgery. A karma yogi would say, you are anyhow going to do surgery because you are a trained surgeon. But now I come and tell, you could do it with detachment. You could consecrate it. You could do it with compassion. That's the way to do. Not stopping. Try to think about it in tantric ways. People come to learn the sexual tantra. One way would be to stop from any form of sexuality. Do yoga and then restart sexuality in another way. And another way is the way in which we teach most of the time. Which we simply tell people... Take your sexuality as it is today and start changing it in terms so it becomes the sexual tantric practice. Like Krishna says, don't try to stop the river. Don't try to stop the wheel from spinning. The universe flows. And he is very clear. He says, let no wise men unsettle the minds of ignorant people. He basically says, you are going to get a great disturbance, evil coming out of it. Nothing good will come out of it. Let people do. I've seen in my life some very wise teachers, some very wise beings, and I've seen them talking to people who are like from the masses. More or less ignorant people who just had a religious feeling and kind of admired those spiritual authorities. And these spiritual authorities, they were never telling them, stop from what you are doing, unless it was something really evil or bad. But if these people were just householders, people living their lives, you would never hear spiritual teachers saying, oh, your life is a misery, your life is a sham, stop. You are raising children. What a horror, my God. Stop from all that and think twice and then come and do yoga. And no, they always ask, how is your family? How is happening? How is your life? Oh, oh, did you bring your kids along? Oh, yeah, let them come inside. Oh, nice. Like you almost thought, is this guy crazy? Like people are coming and they are not really doing something very spiritual. They are more like sympathizers. And yet this person doesn't tell them, cut the crap and start doing five hours of meditation per day. Although that spiritual master, that's what they thought that was good. But the teaching of Krishna is so wise because he says, let, let the wise men not unsettle the minds disturb the minds of the people who are attached to action. Don't tell them it's wrong. 
you will obtain because they will find out when their time is coming, when their soul is singing the soul, the song of freedom, they will know automatically by reading such, by listening to such a lecture, by being in a spiritual environment, they will know God is in our hearts. We have the supreme judge. The Buddha nature is within us. We know. And if we don't know, it means it's not the time to know. That's why not everybody comes to a place like this and does things like this. That's why not everybody is blessed with the understanding of things like these. <clears throat> That's why not everybody has interest for things like this. And they keep on accumulating money and building buildings and building pyramids and Eiffel Towers and doing business and doing that. And Krishna says, let them go. Let them do their thing. It's a form of expressing the energy of life. It's a form of expressing this flow of the river. And if they can't do better than that, it means their soul is not prepared. You can ring the bell and speak about spiritual things. And then some people would come and say, Swami, I want to meditate. Swami, I thought I, I'm not satisfied with what I was doing before. <clears throat> I want to change something. I want to do more. Yeah, and, and then I'm smiling and I'm saying, yes, that's exactly how I felt when I was your age. That's exactly how it came to me. Like we think alike. But if we don't think alike, then Krishna says, do not upset the minds of other people. Let them flow in that direction. There is something good from that. They live their lives. Not everybody is made to be a bodhisattva in this lifetime. Spirits are at very unequal, uneven levels of development on this planet. That's why it is impressive to see that people who understood this message and in various spiritual traditions, they always adapt. Like you can talk to people who are full on, the hardcores who just understood the message and spontaneously, you didn't have to scold them, spontaneously from their heart it came like, I want to do this, I want to try this, I feel that this is significant for me and my life. If I don't do this, I feel I'm wasting myself. And the others do not disturb them. Remember, Jesus is more. He says, if you cast pearls to the swine, they will trample upon it and turn against you because you wake them up from a sweet sleep of ignorance. And for them, ignorance is still appropriate. It's still the evolutionary level where they are. And that's why even things like yoga and this, they cannot be made. Like you can let people know, hey, there is something that is called yoga. Here is a book of yoga. Here is a lecture about yoga. But then that's enough. Because if, the, if it rings a bell, it rings a bell. If it doesn't, Going and making missionary action, all this zeal, filled up propaganda, all these, I don't want to nominalize, sects who are knocking at your door to give you the good tidings and they put pressure on you that you should be one of them. And they are absolutely useless from the standpoint of Krishna. 
They cannot create the real wisdom because the real wisdom doesn't come by unsettling ignorant people from their ignorance. It is the disciple has first of all to start looking for initiation and for teaching. So, this is a very important, very politically incorrect and disturbing, which says if at any time you thought that you are going to knock at every door and give to people the good tidings, this is a sectarian spirit. It does not reflect the proper understanding of the human evolution. And these things, especially the higher levels of initiation, they are made for people who have patience, who have the desire for spiritual things, who are ripe for them, and thus you can attain even the highest levels of spiritual realization. But it has to be done in a proper way. Spirituality taken out of its context and transformed in propaganda, transformed in advertising all over the walls of a city, becomes something ridiculous and inappropriate. It has something very personal, it has something very private, although, of course, spirituality can easily become a mass phenomenon in some societies and in some epochs where it flows naturally. Enough of this. Let us stop here for tonight. Let us just remain a couple of minutes in silence, like a brief meditation, to let all these truths sink in. And after that, we'll stop and part for tonight. And that will do. With this we finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you.